HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India, and out there there's a real famous dish, a classic dish I should say, it's called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are going to be talking today about a new book that's just coming out from Bloomsbury Press. It's called Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. The author is Leah Garces. She is the president for Mercy of Mercy for Animals. You might have known her when she was uh, wearing the hat of the Compassion in World Farming. Um, She's been at Mercy of Animals well. We'll find out soon. She's been fighting for better food and farming systems for nearly 20 years as a leader in the animal protection movement. She oversaw international campaigns in 14 countries at the World Society for the Protection of Animals, and she launched Compassion in World Farming in the United States. She is uh, Her new book is called Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the kitchen, uh, Chicken Industry. Um, and Leah's work has been featured in many national media outlets, including the New York Times, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice Magazine, and The Chicago Tribune, among others. Leah is also on the advisory councils of Encompass and Rebellious Foods. Leah, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. It's a pleasure to have you back. It's actually been a long time since you've been on this show. It's my pleasure to be back. Yeah, I'll have to look back in my archives, but it's definitely been a few years. So, 
First, I want you to tell people a little bit about Mercy for Animals, since you are now uh, heading up that organization as opposed to Compassion and World Farming. And then I want to know why you decided to write Grilled. Sure. Uh, so Mercy for Animals um, is the world one of the world's leading farmed animal rights organizations. And our mission is about constructing a compassionate food system by both reducing the suffering of animals that are in the system and also ending the exploitation of animals used for food. We have six, we're present in six countries in Brazil, Mexico, the United States, Canada, India, and China. Uh, and we really have a global mission uh, to reduce the suffering of farmed animals and, and factory farming altogether. Uh, I love that. So what, what prompted you to write Grilled? Because the most interesting part of that title is turning adversaries into allies. Um, so what, what was your impetus to write this book? Well, I originally sat down to write the book because I wanted to tell people about chicken factory farming and how it's the leading cause of suffering on the planet as I see it. And when I sat down to write it, though, it became about so much more when I reflected on my journey. And my journey had really been accomplished by making unlikely allies. And I thought that was an important message to share with people, that the people you think are your enemy are quite often the exact people, people you need to be talking to. And although that will be messy and uncomfortable, it's really necessary to have those conversations to make progress. And so it's a story that reflects on that, which I think is applicable not only to the work we do as advocates for a better food and farming system, but really across the board. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, as we get into the program. But um, I, what, you know, most of my listeners are probably pretty familiar with uh, the, the poultry industry. I do talk about it quite regularly on the show. Um, but I, I just want to give people a quick thumbnail of sort of where we've come from in terms of the worst aspects of the industry and keeping in mind that the worst is not over in the fact that we, for instance, in a recent program, I covered the fact that they've, they've just uh, increased the line speed in uh, poultry and pork production. Um, but what, what, what was the worst of what you saw and what reforms have you seen during your career? Right. So largely when we talk about factory farming, we talk about farmed animals in the industry. We're talking about chickens because 90% of all factory farmed animals are chickens eaten for meat. And that industry itself is very, very intense. And what we have are baby chickens that are being raised for six weeks or shorter at a very fast rate um, under really difficult circumstances for the animal. So the biggest problem with chickens is their genetics. So where a laying hen, their biggest problem quite often is the cage that they are in. The, for the broiler chicken, the meat chicken, obviously, it's their genetics. So their genetics drive them to grow at an unnaturally fast pace uh, that causes their body to have a breakdown, essentially, because the industry is focused on a large breast. And that means everything else is negotiable. And what happens is the birds often collapse under their own weight. They have heart and lung problems. They have digestive problems. And for the most part, the industry is not interested in solving that because all they have to do is get the birds to survive as cheap as possible, as fast as possible to the six weeks. So for the work that I've been doing over the last years is really focused on changing the genetics. But as a secondary part of that, it's about the conditions in which they're raised. So 
we want birds, we want farmed animals to be able to exhibit their natural behaviors. So that includes things like uh, perching and uh, dust bathing and being in, being able to scratch and peck and do these things that they would naturally do. Well, a very enclosed, darkened environment with nothing in there, nothing to do, is not going to allow that. So we're advocating for a natural environment for the animals. And this doesn't mean that we want, the, you know, the advocation that we're doing now is not just about, you know, pasture raised, although that would be nice. We're talking about just the next notch up, notch up for reducing the suffering of animals in the system. So meaning natural light, more space, uh, forms of slaughter that mean the animal is rendered senseless before they're shackled. So that's called controlled atmosphere stunning. Uh, and so these are the kinds of things we've been advocating for. And so far to date, through the campaigns and a coalition that we have been working and leading in, there have been uh, over 100, nearly 200 brands, if you count the brands, companies that have agreed to this, and some really big ones like Burger King and Subway. There are also some big ones that have not agreed to that yet, and that includes McDonald's, who we continue to run a campaign against. So while there has been a significant amount of progress uh, here and in Europe on this issue, there's still a lot further to go to work on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in Europe actually last year, I, I contacted several of your compatriots in Spain to talk about factory farming of pork um, because that's making big inroads, um, largely driven by the way they are integrated uh, in the sense that their grocery stores uh, like Carrefour or Aldi or something like that tend to be the owners of a lot of these hog farms. And they're really pushing for that concentrated or, you know, confined area feeding operation model that we use here in the States. But um, that I digress. But yeah, there's still there's a lot of work to do. So one of the right. ways in yeah, one of the ways in which um, you were able to um, shed light on industry abuses was that you found a whistleblower in the form of a contract for farmer with Purdue named Craig Watts. Uh, talk a little bit about what you did with Craig. Yeah, Craig really changed my perspective on how to solve this problem. So, you know, prior to this, I was an angry animal activist, uh, you know, really trying to pragmatically solve this. But, but for the most part, I saw factory farmers as the enemy, as somebody I was angry at, was blaming, uh, and really, you know, to the large extent had, you know, wished ill. I wished them to lose their job and their income. And until I met one, until I met a farmer who was doing this. And it so happened that Craig uh, was introduced to me by a, a, a journalist who had been investigating the antibiotic use in the industry. And I asked for, to be introduced. And after a series of texting and Back and forth, I finally worked up the courage to ask Craig if I could go and see him, and could I bring a camera? Because at that stage, five years ago, and really still, getting footage from inside a chicken factory farming is, it's, you know, you know how it is, it's impossible. It's very, very, very difficult. And in fact, when we were looking in North Carolina, the, an ag-gag law was working its way through the system and now is in effect. So now it is illegal for a whistleblower to film and report abuse inside of a slaughterhouse or a, a farm, and the abuser is held accountable. So at this time, five years ago, when I met Craig Watts, I had tried everything. I had, I had tried you know, asking customer services. I had asked companies, can I get a tour? Nobody would let me in. 
So this was the last resort. And I went, even though I was afraid, because I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to show what's going on. And I'm curious. I want to know. Because at the time, it had been about 10 years since an undercover investigation had been done inside of a broiler chicken farm in the United States. So I went. And with all that kind of fear, really considering, like, is this guy going to, is this an ambush? Like, what's going to happen? Why is this crazy farmer inviting me to come see him in rural North Carolina? And I live in Atlanta. So I drove. And when I got there, I sat in his living room. Really, my my fear was replaced entirely with something else, which was feeling very ashamed that I had never considered this human being, why he had signed up to this, you know? And I listened to his story, his history of uh, real heartbreak of a 22-year-old signing up to be his own businessman and stay on the land and have a family in rural North Carolina. And, and that's why he did it. You know, there were no other job options. And Purdue came to town with these contracts, as chicken industry does, and said, all you got to do is get out a loan, and we'll give you chickens. And with that money, you can pay off the loans, like a mortgage. So he did. He took out a quarter of a million-dollar loan when he was in his early 20s. And to me, that seems crazy, right? Like, I can't imagine at 22 myself getting out loan that size. But it was very easily set up for him. And he raised these chickens, and every flock he would get a paycheck, and that paycheck would go towards his loan, and then a little bit would be left over for his family. But, of course, after a time, it's a factory farm, and the chickens started to get sick, and there were problems. And he started to get a smaller paycheck because of some of the injustices around the way these farmers are paid. And at this stage, he wanted out. You know, a few years into it, he was like, I made a mistake, I can't, but now I can't get out. And this went on for 20-plus years of him feeling like an indentured servant, him feeling as trapped as the chickens. Well, he is an and, indentured servant. I mean, he was he an is. indentured servant, yeah. to be blunt. Yeah. I mean, that is the fact. Right. And I didn't know any of that before I showed up on his doorstep. And that was a big for me and realizing, I think I know this problem. I think I know. And I think I know how to solve it because I think I know what the problem is. But the problem is bigger and different than I thought it was. And it was only through having the courage to sit down with a factory farmer and listen to him and genuinely treat him like a human being and listen to his problem that a whole you know, other set of solutions, a whole set of problems and solutions came to my mind. And this, this really was a shift for me five years ago when I started to really understand we can't solve these problems by just talking to people who agree with us. We have to have the courage to speak to people who don't agree with us. And that led me to speaking to eventually Jim Perdue himself, which was a lot scarier actually, and then forging those relationships and keep following that path of curiosity towards the so-called enemy. Yeah, very interesting. So once you completed the film with Craig and it and it got the deserved uh, attention that it got, um, it did appear that there was a, really a considerable sea change uh, with some of the industry players. And as you said, you found yourself sitting down with you know Jim Perdue um, and others um, and discussing animal abuse. How? Uh, how interested were they in uh, listening to registering and making changes um, in how they uh, run their industry? 
Um, and then the corollary of that is that one of the things that is most unjust, in my opinion, in the uh, the contract farming model, is the uh, the constant pressure to upgrade facilities. And so, when you talk about uh, improvements, I also want you to talk about who's paying for them. Is the industry, you know, kind of greenwashing? Are they actually helping farmers to make those better? facilities, like uh, untangle some of that for me? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can speak really specifically about Purdue because they're very transparent about where they are. So you can look up their animal care policy and then their progress against that policy. And they've been doing this for three or four years now. So that started for about a year Purdue stonewalled me. And after the video came out, there was a lot of the typical PR dance that you see out of the poultry industry, which is blaming the farmer, saying I like edited the film in some way that made it look worse than it is, all of that. But then another set of undercover investigations came out on Purdue from Mercy for Animals, where I now work. And they kind of then, they, then it was clear they were then really thinking about what was going on. And there was an article in the New York Times that came out, and it was all about antibiotics, but right at the very end of the article, it had a bit about one of their, their chief vet people, whose name is um, Bruce Stewart Brown, had gone to the United Kingdom, was working, and I knew it was Marion Dawkins because of the language she was using, who was one of the premier broiler welfare scientists in the world, and was using language like, we need to figure out what the broilers need and want, which is a language that she uses. And then at the very end, there's a quote from Jim Perdue in the paper that says, we need happier birds. And I nearly fell off my chair when I read that. I bet. <laughs> like, what is happening? And this had been about a year after my video had come out with Compassion and World Farming. And I thought, okay, they may be stonewalling me, but they're doing something. So I ended up reaching out to their PR person again referring to the article and say, I know you're doing something. I really commend it. Can we sit down? Let's talk. And they had just been hit with another under, this other undercover investigation. And <clears throat> to my surprise, they were like, yeah, we need to talk. Um, and instead of doing that PR dance, they decided to invite me and a handful of activists to meet with them in a hotel in Ocean City to have a conversation. Um, and this felt really familiar and scary, again, like when I went to go see Craig, but I, again, knew I had to go. And after a lot of long conversations and real pushing, you know, pushing them, pushing myself into an uncomfortable, messy place, uh, we started to make some progress. And in July 2016, they published their first animal care policy, and they committed to doing some of the exact same things that I had criticized them for not doing. So one of the examples is they started putting windows in the farmer's warehouses so the sunlight could come through. And what's more to your question is they started paying for them. So they don't pay for all of them. So like a new house that's being constructed, they're saying these require windows. But from the old houses, they've been putting and paying for them to go in. And that's a really, they've been making changes around thinking about how to make it fair for farmers with some of these upgrades because they heard that's unfair. So the windows, and I've visited some of the farmers in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, and in Maryland, looking at 
these windows and what a difference they make to not only the chickens, but to the farmers, because at the end of the day, this is the office of the farmers and they want to be in there more when it's a better environment. So they're saying, yeah, I, I actually come and check on the birds more. I find this more pleasant. I enjoy the lighting. You know, the, it's the difference between you being in a cubicle in a warehouse with no windows and you being in a cubicle with the wind, windows and sunlight coming through. You're just going to find it more pleasant. So do the farmers, so do the birds. And the birds are more active, uh, which promotes their natural behavior and better exercise and well-being all around. So some of the changes that Purdue are asking for, they're, they're paying for, and they are taking that into consideration. They have a lot further to go. They have not made changes on breed or commitments around breed, which is, as I said in the beginning, is the fundamental problem with these birds. But they are, as you can see in their reporting, studying it, looking at it, and thinking it through. And they are committed to meet demand of anyone who wants that. So it's also up to the clients, their customers, to demand that. And that means also, you know, the, the customers themselves demanding that. That's right. Not, but you and me, in other words, consumers. Yeah. Me and, consumers yeah. saying to uh, these large chains or your grocery store or whatever, uh, this is what I want to see in my in my poultry case, in my meat case. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Leah Garces. We're going to talk more about her book grilled, um, and, uh, jump ahead to some of the more sort of futuristic thinking, uh, that the book engages in, which I found fascinating. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Leah Garces. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Thank you. 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Uh, we are talking with Leah Garces today, who is the head of Mercy for Animals. She has written a wonderful book. It is called Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. And she joins me today. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit uh, and talk... Um, even though I'd love to spend hours on just the industry, you know, qua industry, but I wanted to talk about some of the changes uh, that have started under the Trump administration, what with, um, you know, uh, the current univer- uh, uh, USDA head, Sonny Perdue. So one of the things that you describe in some detail is uh, a new sort of certification program called ROC or Regenerative Organic Certificates. Well, what is that about and, and who is getting that and why will it, I mean, does it, is it something that consumers should be looking for? Or is it something that's going to be coming down the pipeline uh, as a, a certification like animal welfare approved? What, what is ROC? Right. So regenerative organic um, certification. So after the Trump administration uh, came to force, uh, there had been a total before that uh, during the Obama administration, advocates had been really working hard to rewrite and improve the organic standards, especially around animal welfare. So unfortunately, the standard as it stands does, you know, as, as it was, and unfortunately still is, really doesn't do much for animals. It does get, it doesn't allow for cages and crates, which is great, but it doesn't do very specific, it doesn't require specific things like, uh, you know, defining what the outdoor space needs to look like, defining the space requirements, or getting specific into the species. So really it fell short of where we wanted to be. And for those who work in the kind of crop sector um, and did not feel that it was really uh, looking closely at soil health as well. And the, this, after that had failed, so what happened is when in the last um, you know, months of the Obama administration, they had passed this, but what happens when the new administration comes in, they have a period of time in which they can review the last few things that the last president had passed, and they decided to not pass this particular measure to improve the organic standing when Trump came into, into play. So essentially, five years of hard work went down the drain in that moment, and it was horrifying for many advocates who had been working to improve the organic standard. But pretty quickly, we brushed ourselves off, and we decided that we needed to find a different way. And so uh, a group of business people, farmers, and advocates got together and decided to write a new standard we felt was a step above the traditional organic standard that had been created by the government and would address the things where we had felt it fell short. So those were three areas. There's three pillars to the regenerative organic standard. One of them is animal welfare, one of them is labor standards, and the other is soil health. And we drafted a new, strat- a new certification. So uh, these were, this was headed up by David Bronner, who heads up Dr. Bronner's brand. He's the um, CEO of that brand, and that is a soap brand traditionally, uh, but they use a lot of products that require you know, plants, and so that's necessary. And then also Patagonia. So Rose Macario, who is uh, the president and heads up that brand, uh, who we all know is sort of an outdoor clothing brand, but they have a lot of products that they use, such as cotton or even wool, 
uh, in which they are impacting the environment and wanted to do a better job. And they feel they really, really felt strongly this is necessary. So they, they chaired it and then they collected a bunch of people who had expertise. And I was one of them with regard to animal welfare. We also had Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, which is one of the best regenerative organic standards that I can find in the world. Um, and there was a smaller dairy uh, example that was from the Northeast. There was uh, the Rodale Institute, which is really uh, good on soil health and some labor experts as well. We drafted a standard and that standard was uh, approved as an actual standard and then started working on a pilot. So current, and, and so over 80 different farms applied to be part of the pilot for the certification and approximately, approximately 20 were accepted just as sort of bandwidth and wanting to do it well. So the, that pilot is underway uh, and include, you know, it includes both big and small brands. So of course, like Patagonia is part of that, that pilot, but so is Horizon or like the dairy company, Horizon Organic. It's, yeah. So that. So there's a variety of, there's, there's 19 or 20 brands that are involved piloting and trying to figure out how to get the certification to really work. And the idea is that farming needs to be, is, is needs to treat the land uh, like an, the ecological system it is. And so, and at the core of that is soil quality. And without soil quality, we can't have food. And so it focuses on not just sustaining which is kind of a, uh, an overused word now because we don't want to sustain where we are now because right where, where we are now is not good enough. We want to regenerate. And so it looks to regenerate the soil and heal the planet rather than just sustain where we're at. It ends up meaning very few animals and very few animal farms could ever qualify for this. And the standard is extremely high, essentially. And very few could meet, meet this standard. It's a very, very high standard for animal welfare and would mean in terms of land and animal impact, very few animals could be kept on the land as well if you want to have that balance, which I think is correct in the reality that we're facing. So that is the standard and it's very exciting. I really believe in, in the kind of regenerative term and the need to heal the soil and looking forward to seeing how that plays out with some of these big brands already behind it like Patagonia. Uh-huh. You know, it makes me um, want to go back to a question that I missed in the beginning of the um, of the show about greenwashing, uh, you know, the greenwashing labels, because um, you make a point about and I, you know, I'm not pointing the figure at uh, certified humane or animal welfare approved, but there are a lot of labels that are um, included on uh, products now in the supermarket, you know, specifically related to either dairy or meat. Um, that talk about, uh, you know, organic, or they say that they're, uh, you know, humanely raised. Um, and that seems to be a very sort of loose, <laughs> a very, a very loose appellation as it were. Um, how, 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 how would a consumer, you know, consumers are, are often very confused and rightfully so by all of these labels and what they mean. Um, how, how will you be able to differentiate say rock from some of these other labels that are, perhaps not, you know, don't uh, exhibit the same sort of stringent uh, standards that you have implied uh, exist for rock? Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it does fall on the consumer right now to try to figure out what a meaningful label is and if it really matches the values the consumer is hoping for. And there's 
so much greenwashing. There's so much confusion. I mean, essentially, you can throw out the word natural. That means nothing. And organic doesn't mean much in terms of animal welfare. And beyond that, if you see a certification, you should be able to look up that certification on your phone as you're in the grocery store and see if it matches what you think you're buying. So Certified Humane, um, Global Animal Partnership, and Animal Welfare Approved are three certifications that are raising animals to a higher standard than the regular industry standard and really thinking through the animal welfare in a meaningful way for the animals that really reduces their suffering. And other ones, however, very confusing, American Humane Association, I will throw them under the bus because although they do allow, you know, they do try, they do address many things, they do also say it's okay to have an enriched cage for a chicken, which is not okay in our view. Or while they, they do not agree or set standards around broilers and their um, their their uh, genetics, which is the key issue I find behind that. So these are things that really um, are not addressed by that industry, by that particular certification. Uh, so just because it has the word humane in it or animal care, you can't trust those. And you have to look up the standard on your phone as you're there. And if you have to wait to go home and check, then you should wait to go home and check. And it's kind of like voting. Like you just have to do your homework. If you're gonna eat animal products, like you need to make sure that it matches your values or else you're in, in, inadvertently feeding into a system that unfortunately is abusive. And the one thing I love about the regenerative organic certification, which is not something you can purchase at this stage, it's still in the pilot phase, but when it comes to market, it's going to be exciting because it's like it checks all the boxes, soil, labor, and animal welfare. And there's no other standard doing that. And that's exciting to me that if that takes off, I think it will be something consumers will feel really good about in terms of covering all the bases, whether you're buying your, like, you know, coconut oil or, or your eggs. Right, right, right. I think, I mean, I, I was really, I'm glad you were able to give it so much, you know, airtime right now, because I really thought it was a great concept. Let's, let's, let's move on, though, and talk a little bit about how um, many of the big uh, animal protein companies like Tyson are, uh, are um, currently investing in meat substitutes. And you talk quite a bit about that in your book. Um, so let's, Talk a little bit about why they're doing that. And then also, I'd like you to explain the difference between uh, the companies that are basing their, um, that are, are developing proteins based on plants and companies that are using meat cells as a base. Talk a little bit about that, sort of that whole segment of the industry. Yeah, let's talk about meat substitutes. It's, first of all, a very exciting time in that world and it gives me a lot of hope so as many of us will know uh, burger king has now introduced the impossible burger which is now available nationwide meaning if you want a burger fast food drive through anywhere in the country you can go buy a plant-based one instead of an animal one which used to be from feedlots you know so a whopper from burger king is from a feedlot system now you can have an option and that is extremely exciting because in my head you know i if i try to think of like for example like we all we all are very aware we need to eat less meat 
can I imagine half of the world going vegan or vegetarian or half of the country going vegan or vegetarian in five years? No. Can I imagine half of the meals being vegan or vegetarian? Yes. And placement of options in regular supermarkets and restaurants makes that possible. So, and this industry is really exploding. And what's exciting is seeing very traditional meat companies take this on as an option. And I find it very interesting to see that they're taking that on more easily and readily than they are taking on a higher welfare product. And I, I think that's an interesting thing for us to observe. Um, and so in Atlanta, where I live, it was last month that even KFC did a trial of the Beyond Chicken Nugget in their KFC here in Atlanta. They did a one-day trial, and they had enough of these Beyond Chicken Nuggets that were supposed to last for two weeks. And I went to the actual trial, and it sold out in five hours. They painted the whole KFC green. And there was people wrapped around. There was traffic stopped. There was um, a double car line through the drive-through. And I got there when it opened at like 10 or 10:30. It was insane, which just speaks to, <laughs> speaks to the excitement and demand around a plant-based product, a plant-based meat substitute. Uh, it's healthier, and you know, it doesn't have the cholesterol, and it doesn't have the environmental impact, uh, and and that's exciting. And you could see the beyond um, the beyond meets IPO, their stock prices, you know, when they went, it's an insane um, IPO that was one of the most, it was the most considered the most valuable in 2019 in the first quarter of this year. So that's why companies are excited. It is a big moneymaker. There is a huge demand and trend for these products in the market right now. And that's very exciting. Um, now plant, all the ones I've just talked about are, are meats that are made from plants. So they are made from pea protein. They are made from um, um, soy or other products that are plants, essentially. There's a whole nother separate industry that is starting to really get off the ground that are cultured cells. So these are cells that are taken from a live animal, from like a feather or some other part of the animal. The animal doesn't have to be killed in the process. And then those are brewed or cultured, like you would do in a beer brewery, and they are turned into meat. And that then creates real meat, like real animal cells. And I've actually tried it. I've tried duck, which was delicious. And it was made, it was a duck sausage, which I tried with uh, Mission Barns, which is one of the 27 or so companies that now exist in the world that is experimenting with this. So it's not approved to be to market yet, and it's very expensively produced right now, but the potential is enormous because if they crack the, the economics around it, it has unlimited potential to feed us meat cells, meat protein, real, you know, the burgers that are, there's no, people say like, is this a fake burger? It's not a fake burger. It's a burger made from animal cells. So it is exactly like the the burger you're eating that is from a slaughtered animal, except no slaughterhouse was involved in the process. There's no, then there's no food safety risk. There's no blood. There's no uh, workers, you know, rights issues or workers comp issues, or there's no, you know, indentured servant factory farmer involved in the process. It's just cutting that whole part of the risk out. And it's directly raising these like 
the way I like to think of it and the, the sketches I've seen of the future are really like a brewery. Like you would go microbrewery and you have these big breweries that are growing these cells and then that's turning into nuggets and burgers. And it's very exciting. It feels like the light at the end of the tunnel for for me and the end of factory farming where you know you could have that little bit of regenerative that exists for people who really want animals that have lived this natural life and the people who don't really care, which is most of the population, they just get this kind or they have the plant-based. And that's really exciting to think of the end of this really destructive food system we've created. Well, I, I'd love to see that, but I, I know that you're going <laughs> to, you'll definitely find a lot of pushback from your, uh, from the um, farmers and ranchers who are involved in, in actually raising animals now and, and, and very, uh, very um, reluctant to give up that way of life. But, you know, as you say, it's like the guys who really want to do it the right way are the ones that should be allowed to do it the right way. And I'd love to see factory farming go the way of the dodo as well. I mean, there's nothing, there is not anything good about it. So um, aside from the plentitude of cheap proteins. What about in, I want to wrap this up because we're we're a little bit over time now, but just, you know, for, for developing countries where meat is only just now becoming an option, do you see this as an opportunity to reframe the whole discussion around diet? Um, or do you see this as kind of, um, almost sort of unfair to them. I mean, uh, you know, I, I find it very problematic to be dictating to other countries that haven't had the advantages that we've had, uh, whether you want to call them advantages or not, but, um, uh, you know, that they can't, they're now not going to be allowed to have those same uh, products that we have enjoyed for so long uh, because we've decided in our infinite wisdom in the Western civilization that it's better that we don't do that. H- how are you going to sell them on this, on the idea of, um, lab-based meat? Well, I think that a lot of our food choices are not as, uh, choices as, as much choices as we think, but government policies, uh, and decisions made by the government through subsidies and economic benefits are directing what kind of farming and food system we actually have. So, I really feel strongly that things like lab meat or however you want to call it, meat that doesn't come from a slaughtered animal, once countries realize the benefits to their country, I think governments are going to fully embrace this. And I think probably China will be one of the first ones to go, yeah, bring it, because this is a type of system that will allow for sovereignty, food sovereignty. So right now, so many of our uh, international relations are required, you know, a lot of our food is for a lot of these countries is requiring uh, it's require it requires good international relations or nothing to go wrong. So for example, a country might rely on the import of Brazilian beef in order to have beef in their country. And then they're at the whim and, and under the power of Brazil in order to get that food. Well, imagine if they could cut that out and they could say, you know what, we can just produce this in a brewery right here in the middle of our city, no problem. And we don't have to worry about the tariffs or the currency problems that might come or, you know, a war or a problem that might be happening in that country that affects our food. So it's really a, big, a great uh, a great gateway to food sovereignty that also doesn't have the environmental impact or the tariffs or any of the other challenges we have. I and mean, we see the, the impact that strained relations, for example, between China and the United States are having on our food prices, for example, and how that can make chicken prices fluctuate like crazy. 
well, we can be done with that if we just let go, you know, of this need of an animal to come from, for, for meat to come from a slaughtered animal. It doesn't need to necessarily. And I think that's really exciting. And I, I actually, I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a dictation of ways. It's actually a freedom for countries and food sovereignty. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. But Leah, this is your moment to promote yourself and your book shamelessly. So um, talk about your website, talk about your organization, where can people learn more? And uh, do you have any upcoming events you want to promote? What's your timeline here? Yeah, well, I really encourage everyone to go to mercyforanimals.org. And, you know, I think we need all the help we can get. If you can donate, that would be wonderful. If you can spend time just writing emails, we can, you can sign up to be a hen hero, which is a great way to get involved in our campaigns to influence both uh, government legislation and uh, corporate policy to achieve our mission. Um, you can also find my book, Grilled, on Amazon and any good bookstore um, or on Bloomsbury's website. And to spread the word that way, that would be really great. Um, and I have a lot of upcoming speaking events, which I won't tell you all about them. But if you go onto our website under mercyforanimals.org backslash grilled, you can find them there. And thank you so much, Katie. I love being on this, uh, this show and talking to you. Well, I, I will, we'll be talking again soon. I have no doubt of that. Thank you very much for your time, Lee. I really appreciate it. Best of luck with the book. It deserves all kinds of attention, and I hope you get what you deserve with her <laughs> in the best possible way. Uh, so thank you so much. And thanks to my sponsor. And, uh, <laughs> and thanks to all of you who tuned in for this episode. See you next week. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.